0: So, let's get to it. Sorry, I'm just uh, trying to play with my computer here a little bit. Okay. All right, I think this is a lot better. All right, anyway, let's get into, uh, into the lesson for today. So, uh, to start, any questions? I know the assignment is due tonight, and so does anybody have any questions about that? Okay, good. So it's, I'm glad to hear that. Um, and of course, if you want to, uh, I'll stay on a little bit after if people want to talk after class. That is also perfectly good. Okay, so what we're going to do today then is, if, if nobody else has any questions, um, we're going to do, or I'm going to do most of the talking today, if not all of the talking today. Uh, just because... I imagine while people are still working on the assignments, they might not have gotten to the play, and and that's fine. And we have a tremendous amount of history to cover. Not only are we really substantially changing centuries, sort of, um, but we're also changing countries. And so, like the last two times we changed countries, it just involves a lot of uh, kind of historical context. So if um, anybody wants to interrupt me, jump in, has any questions about the assignment or about what we're talking about on the screen in in the presentation. All of that is fine, please do, but I'm probably going to be in slideshow mode for for most of the class. So instead of uh, typing, you're going to have to actually turn your mic on and let me know. Okay, so um, any questions about that? Or any questions about Lear or Ron that we had last week? I said I think we'd talk about that a little more. However, I think we could probably close out that chapter uh, of the class. We have a lot more to, to get to. Okay. Well, if there are any other questions, let me know. I'm going to get the slideshow up. Okay, good. So, um, English and French theater. We'll start with English theater. A little bit of history. On the left column, we have the the history of England at this time. In the right column, we have a a bit of theater history, some kind of major events in in the theater. So, Elizabeth dies in 1603. um, And then she appoints her cousin, James of Scotland, James the Sixth of so- Scotland, to become James the First of England. Um, she doesn't have any children, which is why James gets the call. Elizabeth is, by descent, Scottish. Her line is relates to Owain or Owen Tudor, who was the second husband of the wife of Henry V which is where her grandfather Henry the 7th gets his claim to the throne it's a very tenuous claim but he was the grandson of Owen Tudor and she is the grandson of Henry the 7th so there's this scottish connection that gets called upon to fill the role once she dies and she dies without issue meanwhile on the continent between 16 and 18 or in 1619 or so and 1648, we have the Thirty Years' War, which is really a, a religious war between the Protestant, the Protestants who are gaining, uh, gaining ground on the continent, and the, the Catholics. Um, and that goes on for a little while, and it, it affects France in, in certain ways. Uh, then 1625, James dies, and his son, uh, Charles I, takes the throne. James was a somewhat popular ruler, albeit uh, there were some problems there. Charles I is very much not a popular ruler. And when you start to see kings dissolving parliament, as you, you do with Charles, it does not speak to a stable regime. And in fact, Charles became so very unpopular that in 1642, the Civil War breaks out, and the theatres are closed. Initially, they're closed temporarily. Then in 1649... Who's this? Okay. Then in 1649, uh, Charles is executed and we drop the monarchy and it becomes a commonwealth it being England England becomes a commonwealth ruled over by a protectorate a protector of the realm and that is Oliver Cromwell this is the Puritan rule this is a a kind of rise in parliamentary power and at this point we have the the Puritans in control there's a dictate which closes the theaters yet again Um, there's an argument as to whether people saw the theater closing as a temporary measure or whether it was considered at the time, at the time of its closing to be something permanent, something that was going to, to kind of last, um, whatever the, whatever, however this message was received, the theaters were effectively closed from 1649 to 1660. Um, now that doesn't mean there wasn't drama going on. There was a lot of closet drama. People were writing. Um, people were writing drama. There was also a few dramas written by William Davino who was staging some some stuff at that time. Um, the workaround was that Davino's stuff was musical. It had it had songs in it, and so music musicals were allowed on a limited basis. And so there was a few plays staged by William Davino in, especially in the, the 1656 and later Um, the siege of the siege of Rhodes was one of them. The Spanish conquest in Peru was another, Um, you know, they, they tended to be pretty elaborate, uh, and, and use a lot of song. They're very different from the plays we're used to. But effectively the theaters were closed. And those, even those plays were staged at Rutland House, which is where Davino lived. Um, good. You could see also at this time, on the continent, the Treaty of Westphalia that ends the Thirty Years' War, legalizing um, uh, Protestant. Protestants were kind of given legal status. Meanwhile, in England at the time, and we're, we're already kind of talking about England, it's sort of hard to Disintegrate politics from theater, um, but what we see as Shakespeare's power begins to wane, and and then as he dies, is some new genres beginning to uh, take center stage. Um, the most popular playwright after Shakespeare at this time was Ben Jonson. Ben Jonson's plays are very different. Has anybody actually read anything by Ben Jonson? OK. Um, well, if you have just just let me know uh, Ben Johnson's plays were very different. They tended to be kind of more localized. They, they occurred usually in kind of one or two settings. Um, and they also tend to be a little more biting in their satire. Volpon is a comedy about a man who um, fakes an illness in order to trick people into thinking he's going to die and leave his inheritance to them. And he has three kind of clownish people come to him, um, and he has them do all kind of ridiculous things in order to um, attract his his favor to get his inheritance. And he, he he him and his servants sort of play tricks on them. Um, Beaumont's The Night of the Burning Pestle is sort of a meta theater type thing. It's really interesting. It's about a play, but it's also about the the uh, the audience who is watching the play these kind of this merchant audience who really wants their apprentice to join the play and so they they have him come on and, and join the play um an apprentice named rife and and they're very excited about this and it, it's um you know it's it's a little more about the theater itself and it has this kind of meta quality to it it's really weird and really interesting um the maid's tragedy was a major kind of Tragedy after, you know, Shakespeare by this point by 1610, 1611 has really stopped writing tragedies. And so that has taken over. Um, Then uh, 1613, fire burns down the globe. Supposedly, this was a cannon that was fired in the play Henry VIII, Shakespeare's final history play. And arguably his final play, though some people think two noble kinsmen actually came later. Um, If you've ever seen Henry VIII staged... It is god-awful boring. They they need that cannon to keep you awake. I, I fell asleep myself two or three times when I went to see it. Uh, so, you know, burning down the globe is a really great way to keep your audience awake. Um, however, they just built another globe. Um, I think they did move locations when they rebuilt the globe, but that was, you know, 1599 to 1613 was the, the era of the first globe. Um, what you're beginning to see... With Johnson and with uh, with Beaumont, is something called a city comedy, um, and we're going to talk about this a little more. Uh, but the city comedy usually takes place in an urban environment, almost always London, and it features um, a, a sort of low-born, corrupt atmosphere. the The people there are sits. That's sit. That's short for citizen. They're people of the town and sit is typically not a compliment. Um, you know, and it, it kind of means you are one of London, which means you're sort of into the, the grimy scrubby way of getting ahead or or making money. Um, Shakespeare writes almost no city comedies. The closest is his play Merry Wives of Windsor. Um, which takes place in a, in a single location and it's a Falstaff play. It's really, the play really exists to give the very popular character from, um, Henry the fourth part one, John Falstaff, uh, a little bit more to do because apparently he was Elizabeth, the First's most favorite character, her favorite character. Um, so Shakespeare isn't really doing these things and they are very popular, um, in post Shakespeare and, by playwrights who who are not shakespeare another example of this is i think this is a ben Jonson play the staple of news uh which is about um the the kind of the birth of the news industry and a staple is like a um like a newsstand where they sell these news books which are the, the original newspapers and it there's people out there there's like a, a character called the quidnunk who is addicted to hearing news right he's he's Always trying to consume more and more news, and he never has enough money because he's always spent all his money on news. It's depicted very much like a drug addict, but with news. And so there's this kind of a, a bit of a critique of the modern city, which is a critique really of the modern world. You also see here with 1613, John Webster and the Duchess of Malfi. John Webster is probably the um, most famous playwright, maybe after Johnson. And he's the most famous tragedian after Shakespeare, I would say. I don't think Johnson is well known for his tragedies. That's not what people are reading from Johnson. The Duchess of Malfi is a revenge tragedy. And it's particularly brutal. Um, the, The tragedies and the plays generally written in the time of James are... More brutal. They're more bloody. The the villains are blacker. Um, in the Duchess of Malfi, which we're going to talk about, the the villain doesn't just want to kill the the heroine. You know, the good guy. He wants to damn her soul to hell for all eternity. So it's just in a little extra punch. Um, the Changeling also has this quality. The Changeling is about a woman who um, who's kind of blackmailed by a servant who's. Uh, like a depicted as like this really creepy ugly guy, and so she ends up having to sleep with him, and they start getting involved in um, other criminal acts, and eventually she kind of falls in love with him to her damnation. But it's also a very dark, um, a very creepy little play. Tis pity she's a whore. Also, I I mean this is after James has died, but this is very much in the Jacobin trend. It's very much a jacobin play, even though it's written a little later. And that is about an incestuous relationship between a brother and sister, um, which involves a lot of blood and, and death. So, you know, the, the, the temper is a little different. The closest I would think with Shakespeare is for all of you who've, who've read Macbeth. Macbeth is, isn't quite as, um, bloody as these plays here, but the, uh, the the thing with Macbeth is that it's um it does involve a bit more of a nihilistic strain than the other plays. Um you know, and there's there's witchcraft and the witches tell Macbeth what's gonna happen, uh and kind of damn him by virtue of their predictions. This is very much in the Jacobin spirit. Um uh, Jacobean, excuse me, not Jacobin, Jacobean spirit. Uh, James did write a book on the black arts that the actual king did. And so the the change in, to, to this kind of darker type of theater really seems to match James's taste. Okay? And then 1634, the death of Johnson. Um, after Johnson dies, we see playwrights like James Shirley and Richard Broom, who I would be shocked if anybody in this class has even heard of. Uh, they start to come up and you have this brief period called the Carolingian period named after Charles, uh, you know, and their plays, which are very different from <laughs> everything else that's gone, that's gone before them. They're more comedies of manner. Uh, and that type of play really sets the precedent for plays that occur after 1660 and the restoration of the theater. I'm going to talk more about them when we get to that and two weeks time um and yeah but but there's this kind of and there, there it's a very brief episode it's not studied in a lot of detail there's only like really two major studies that i've read of the carolingian period um but the 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 plays are a little bit more about you know like social class and what the the kind of upper classes do how they behave things like that um good so here here's good old ben Johnson with his vacant stare um and he was a rival of Shakespeare but also a friend of Shakespeare Uh, he wrote um a very famous poem kind of an ode to Shakespeare after he died he was the one who had the famous line about Shakespeare knew little Latin and less Greek which is to say that Shakespeare was um was not as well learned as Johnson and Johnson was he grew up poor and he had to become a bricklayer's apprentice Before he was able to transition into into writing plays and he was incredibly embarrassed apparently about being a bricklayer's appearance uh, a bricklayer's apprentice and so he sort of seemed to overcompensate for that with this this demonstration of learning um, which Shakespeare really doesn't have Shakespeare isn't Shakespeare's learned we get a lot of classical references, but it's much less than what you'll see in Johnson. Bartholomew Fair or Bartholomew Fair, both pronunciations are considered correct. They're concerned with the streets of London and this the fair, which went on from centuries before Johnson to I think the 19th century, they had this fair every year, was a, a yearly fair where people would sell different, you know, sell things. Like it was a market, uh, the, the biggest market in London, and you'd also have kind of performances in, in different parts of the fair. And in Johnson's depiction of it, there's... Um, there's a lot of seedy things going on. There's prostitutes, there's uh, uh you have a corrupt police officer who gets put in the stocks. Um, there's also a, a character who's, who's a Puritan character named uh, Zeal of the Land Busy. And Zeal of the Land Busy um, gets exposed as a hypocrite. One thing to know about Puritans and almost all playwrights is they depict Puritans as hypocrites. Burtons are always holier than thou until they think they can get laid. And then they're really all about that. Um, and zeal of the land busy is, is the most famous version of this type of character. Um, the plays are realistic or at least more realistic than Shakespeare. The satire is very biting. Shakespeare isn't really a satirist in the sense that his entire plays are, are satires. There's little bits of it here and there, but, um, But Johnson really is a satirist and is really willing to go to town on an aspect of society he disagrees with. Uh, The city comedy becomes more and more popular because London, between 1550 and the era of Johnson, so 1610 or so, it more than doubles in size. The mercantile class grows and grows and London becomes just a hub of trade. And therefore, people are flooding in. Um, and and the world is really rapidly changing. Um, yep, here we go. And here's just a picture from Bartholomew or Bartholomew Fair. You can see the, the depiction of the fair, these kind of crowds of different people, more lowborn people getting involved. Another genre, which we haven't spoken about yet, but Johnson was the master of, was the mask. Um, this is a form of courtly entertainment. It, it started really in Italy. Um, but then it spread throughout the continent. It was extremely popular in the, amongst the royals. And what the mask was, was a very short play. Um, usually with a pastoral or classic theme classic in the sense of, um, from like ancient Rome or Greece. And usually like a satyr would come along and come cause some sort of disruption. And then like the gods would come out and set it right. There's very little plot, very little conflict Some masks don't have a conflict Um, and there's usually like a little bit of an allegory in them and um, what they were really known for was these elaborate beautiful sets, incredibly expensive costumes and also the Royals would actually participate. They would dress up and play costume in these masks including the Queen of England and of Denmark uh, uh, James's wife. She starred in a few of these masks and you so you would have these royals come on performing with the actors singing and, and all this stuff. Um, and it was, you know, it was considered the, like the height of hedonism that these these royals would come out and, and perform um, the most famous uh, set designer of his day, maybe even our day, Inigo Jones uh, was, you know, the um, was the person who he had traveled to Italy. He had learned a lot about stage design and all that, and uh, he brought that to to uh, London. And um, he was uh, incredibly well paid for this. Uh, and him and Johnson teamed up together and they would write plays in part around the costumes and the sensuousness of it. Eventually, they had a, a falling out. I think Johnson was a pretty hard guy to work with. Which is why Johnson did a lot of his staged a lot of his plays in the children's theater. The children at St. Paul's was a big uh, children's group that Johnson would do plays with. In part, scholars believed because the children wouldn't argue with him, <laughs> so that's what he liked. And and Jones did, so they had this this big falling out. Here's some costume design. So we saw the set design here. Here's some costume designs from Jones and different different masks they worked on. And you can see kind of the nature of it. And these a lot of times would be for in some cases, the literal queen of England. Another topical, uh, another, excuse me, popular genre, the revenge tragedy came in. We talked about this a little bit with Tis Pity and with Duchess Amalfi. Um, to say this is purely a Jacobean genre is, is to misspeak. Um, The Spanish tragedy from Thomas Kidd was the first revenge tragedy. It was immensely popular, and it was from, like, I want to say 1587, I think. So this is well before before James comes in. Um, But they're based upon Seneca. Um, Shakespeare wrote them. Titus Andronicus and Hamlet were his revenge tragedies. Hamlet's much—I mean, we all know Hamlet. Hamlet's sort of the exception to almost every rule. Titus Andronicus was really— of this type though there's a scene in titus andronicus uh i don't know if anybody's read it um where the the main character titus in order to get revenge kills this woman's two children and then bakes them into food and feeds them to her so that that's that type of play um and you know with with the duchess of Malfi, uh and you could see it here Here's Ferdinand and, and the Duchess, who doesn't get a name. Um, the, the, you know He's angry at her for marrying below her station. She marries Antonio, who's her steward. That's the manager of her lands and is not a titled person. Um, they have three children together. So it's a number of years pass. And then Ferdinand and his brother, the Cardinal, discover this. And Ferdinand, in a rage, hires someone, de Bozola, to to kill her as an assassin, but it's not good enough just to kill her. So what he does is he tries to kill her children, but he can't. So he makes models of them, like like three-dimensional models of them, to make her think they're the children's corpses, to drive her to despair, so that she gives up her religion, so that when he kills her, she goes to hell. So she doesn't just die, she goes to hell. This despair is, is a depression in which... You don't see the salvation of God. So despair was actually considered very dangerous and depression would be considered very dangerous because in in some way it meant you were you were closing yourself off to the grace of God. Um, And so this is what Ferdinand tries to do. Uh, He fails to get her to despair, though he does kill her. And then his assassin, his assassin, De Basila, um, realizing the goodness of the Duchess in Act 5 decides to assassinate the Ferdinand and the Cardinal. Um, and so there's this kind of bloody showdown between the former assassin and his former employers. Um, and it's a, it's a great play. It's very creepy. Uh, the, the Cardinal especially is this like tr- very dry, unemotional character who clearly has no conscious, uh, conscience. Um, but I, I'd recommend this. We almost did this play uh, if we had time. But anyway, so that's that's England. Now crossing the channel to the rise of French theater. So this is French history, 1500 to 1600. Um, so Francois I, one of the Capitan kings, he brings the court to Paris. And that becomes kind of the cultural hub. Uh, this remains in Paris until um, Louis XIV, in I want to say the 1680s, brings the court to Versailles. Um, but now Paris becomes the, this cultural capital, and it's very important for that. We also have uh, during the reign of Henry II the Habsburg Valllo wars Velo I think it's, it's pronounced um, a war between France and and the Holy Roman Emperor, which was a, a Germanic position he was um, he was the emperor of what we would roughly call the Holy Roman Empire, which was kind of a loose confederacy of German language states um, and some Italian states. However, saying this was one empire is really to misspeak. A lot of people who spoke German uh, felt more of a a kinship to their local Margate or their local prince, not really to the emperor. Um, Really the emperor became kind of a check for a long time on papal power. But you know whatever. Now it's a problem for for France, right? And and France is, uh, you know, very much invested in in Cath in in Catholicism. It's a Catholic country, so you know you you really what you have here is kind of France taking the um. Uh, taking the Pope's side against the Holy Roman Emperor, um, who was at that time Charles V, who was. You know, probably the most important of the Holy Roman emperors. But anyway, what happens with this relatively short war is that France is fighting for certain regions in northern Italy. So they're going into northern Italy and they're getting exposed to the Italian theater tradition, which, as we mentioned in a previous lecture, really has a lot of like commedia dell'arte stuff, a lot of traveling, clowning performances. And this gets into France after the, these conflicts. Um, furthermore, we have kind of war of the religions that are sp- springing up between the Huguenots, um, who are somewhat sponsored by the bourbon princes who are, uh, princes from the Capitan uh, tradition. Um, that goes back to the, the 13th century, but whatever. Anyway. So the bourbon princes are there. There's some Catholics battling it out. Um, the The Catholics under Catherine de Medici. That's not Medici's Medici. I added an extra S. My apologies. Um, she's uh, Henri's widow, and she is a uh, not a well liked theater in uh, uh, character in history. Uh, and she attempts to assassinate a major Huguenot leader. Huguenots were were just French Protestants. That's that's what that word is. Um, and she fails to, and then she decides to kill a bunch of Huguenots, and this is what becomes known as the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre, um, and and she's kind of damned throughout history for that. Um, Fifteen ninety eight, Henri the Fourth, a a uh, I believe he's a Catholic, but he is a Bourbon. Uh, he takes the throne. He pra- passes the Edict of Nantes. Nan, Nantes Uh, granting Protestants rights in France. This doesn't last too long, but it is going to put an end to the problems up to now. Um, Yeah, And, and so Henri is the, I believe he's the first official Bourbon king of France, and this lasts until... Uh, Louis the 16th is deposed in, I think, 1791, um, and then it comes back again in after Napoleon is dip- disposed. The Bourbons come back into power and they're in power through Charles the 10th, who is uh, whose reign ends with the revolution of 1848. But anyway, so this is kind of where it starts. Um, and then 1610, Henri is assassinated Louis Thirteenth takes control. And here we begin to see the rise of the absolutist monarch. Um, and Louis brings in Cardinal Richelieu uh, as a minister. And Cardinal Richelieu begins to take care of things. They begin to um, regulate the finances of the kingdom in a more careful way. Um, does anybody here know what a cardinal is? Or do, should I speak to what that is? Okay, well, a, a cardinal is a a member of a council that regulates the church. They're sort of the head council in the church. Now, throughout history, it's gone back and forth between whether the pope has the absolute power or the cardinal has an absolute power. At this point, the pope does, but the the council, the cardinal council, the council of cardinals, elects the pope, um, and so they're they're the most powerful people in the church, with the exception of the pope. But anyway, so he's in France. He's the minister. Um, And he's kind of bringing things into order. So Louis the 13th dies 1643 and his five-year-old son, Louis the 14th takes control. And this here is a picture of Louis the 14th as an adult. Back then calves were considered like the sexiest body part. Um, Calves were the abs of the 17th century. And so all pictures of Louis, if they're a full body portrait, tend to show him showing off his lower leg. and uh, yeah so that, that's what you're seeing there sometimes the, the cabs would be padded uh, but anyway 1648 30 years of war ends 1659 um, the Franco-Spanish war begins um, and the Bourbons kind of beat back the Habsburgs in Spain and you start to see Spanish, uh, excuse me, Bourbon rule in Spain as well all right, so French theater in the, this really should say the 16th century, the 1500s, my bad. Um, what you, you see is the, uh, a collection of writers who call themselves La Uh they come together to start developing standards for French poetry. Um, and they studied together at, at college. And what they want to do is what Dante did, which was make French language as important as Latin, as the classics. And they want to establish a French literary tradition. And um, initially, they're working with sonnet cycle sequences. So the sonnet, it's a 14-line poem. They come in a number of varieties. The two big ones are the Petrarchan and the Shakespearean, or the, the Italian and the the Elizabethan. Um, But whatever, they're they're working in collections of these poems uh, and they try to do it in French to develop a French vernacular that they could be proud of. But this starts this idea of French literature as being something regulated. Um, It's not emergent. It's coming from small groups of people who are saying, we have rules. Here are the rules. This is what you have to do. The greatest manifestation of this you see before you is l'Académie Française. Um, the, the academy, the academy was established by Cardinal Richelieu and it was designed to establish standards of literary taste and language. Um, yeah. And so the membership, the people in the academy who are kind of protecting the French language, it's always limited to 40. It still exists today and it's still doing that same thing. Um, very often rules about what means what. And um, the, the grammar of a language and whatnot are set by the Academy and people, the French language has seems to have changed less than the English language. And often this is credited to the Academy. I I can't vouch if that's true or not, but that's kind of like the popular perception. Um, here's an example of one of their publications is like a dictionary of official words and what they mean. Um, and you you stick to this it's a very conservative institution not necessarily politically conservative but conservative in the sense of they are trying to maintain a standard set in the past they're not like they're not uh they're not looking at the language as living but looking at the language as solidified at this past point okay but they also establish, and this is important for our purposes, rules for drama. And they have these five major rules. Verisimilitude. Um, every action has to be believable, which means soliloquies are out. Real people don't give random speeches to audiences. Assume there's a fourth wall there and act like it is. If you don't speak to walls in your house, you're not, you're not going to do it on stage. Uh, Also decorum, which means plays should teach and please. They should all uphold a certain moral standard. They shouldn't be depicting violence. They had to have a certain delicacy and manner to them. You don't mix comedy and tragedy. You can't do what Shakespeare did. That is straight out. If it's a comedy, it's a comedy. If it's tragedy, it's a tragedy. Um, Comedies can incorporate low-born characters into them. Tragedies should not. They are about higher-born people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be higher born French people. It could be higher born people from the classical world, but whatever. We're not dealing with low people unless they're they're maids or servants of the the upper classes. Unities, they were super, excuse me, they were super into Aristotle. Unity of time, place, and action was very, very important to them. Um, And then they were actually stricter than Aristotle was. Five acts also. Each play has five acts, as you can see with the Misanthrope. Uh, this is based on Seneca. They saw Seneca as a great model, just as you know the English did. Um, and but they what they took from Seneca wasn't blood and violence like the English did. Instead, they said, "Yeah, five acts. That's good." <laughs> so, uh, two different countries, one playwright, two very different responses. Okay, here's some of the playwrights of that period: um, Cognier, Pierre Cognier. Uh, so he starts writing really before the establishment of the Academy. Um, and he had, in 1629, his comedy *Milet*. He, he brought uh, his comedy to a group of traveling actors. They started working on that. He was from Normandy initially, and it, and it takes him a little while working with these traveling actors, but he eventually gets to Paris. Um, and he has these comedies imitating the gentry and the upper classes. and, when he gets to Paris, Cardinal Richelieu is very impressed by Cognier, and he brings him in with this group of five poets to create a new type of drama, to really set these rules that we, we just saw in the Académie. However, Cognier finds these rules to be really, really strict. He breaks with uh, Richelieu. He stages some of his plays, but eventually he returns to his hometown in Normandy. Um, 1630, 1635, he writes his most famous play and stages, most famous play the seed. Uh, it lacked a lot of the unities or it lacked a lot of yeah the unity that of of action that the Academy really wanted to really wanted to highlight. Um, and so what happened was it's it, it spawned a huge pamphlet war where people were writing open letters about, oh God, this is so immoral and, and so not unified. Um, woe is us? And the play was extremely popular. People liked it, but they were in, they were angry about its its moral character more than anything. And so you, you'll see when people get upset about theater, they start pamphlet wars, which is somebody writes an open letter, and somebody else writes an open letter in response, and they go back and forth. In England, this happens in the sixteen nineties, um, you know, with with a guy named Jeremy Collier, who we'll get to later. But it, it's happening in France in the uh, in the sixteen thirties. Okay, there's another later playwright, Racine. Um, Moliere staged Racine's first two plays. Um, however, in his second play, Racine wanted to make a little extra money, so he actually was going to sell it to a second company to perform in it at the same time. Um, meanwhile, he also seduced Moliere's company's leading actress. And so for both of those reasons, Racine and Moliere had a, had a falling out. Um, however, a little later in life, Racine ended up marrying, settling down. He worked in kind of a bureaucratic position for, for Louis XIV. Um, though after Louis XIV died, Louis's widow kind of begged Racine to come back to the theater. And as an older man, he he did. And he staged a few plays in the 1680s and I think one in the 1690s, which were kind of simpler mor- morality tales. Okay, And then, of course, our man Moliere. Um, J- jean Baptiste Poquille, Poquille, I think is how you say that. Um, Now he had kind of an access to the upper classes. Um, Good old Jean Jean Baptiste, his father purchased him a position in the court of Louis the 13th, which was, I think he was in charge of carpets. So Moliere would have been in charge of carpets, uh, which kind of sounds like it sucks to me, but apparently it was a really big deal to have that kind of access to court. Um, and I think it kind of sounded like it sucked to Moliere too, because as soon as he could, he left the court at age 21. In order not to embarrass his family, he changed his name to Moliere, because his, his father was deeply embarrassed by his son's behavior. You have to remember uh, theater people in France were still considered lowborn. You could not be buried in a Catholic cemetery if you were in the theater, if you're a performer. Um, so, you know, very different from court. He founded the illustri theater in 45, went bankrupt, but he keep, he kept working. He kept, he established another theater group and he kept, um, he kept producing his plays throughout France. He gets to Paris by 58 and performs a play in either 58 or 59 for, for Louis the 14th. Um, he had many enemies because his plays were very successful, uh, but Louis XIV protected him. Um, and when Moliere died and he was not allowed to be buried in a Catholic cemetery, Louis XIV intervened on his behalf and had his body, Moliere's body, exhumed and placed in a Catholic cemetery. So that's how much um, both Louis and Richelieu really loved this guy. The story of his death is interesting. In a play called The Imaginary Invalid, Moliere was playing the imaginary, he was playing a sick person. Um, meanwhile, he was suffering from, oh God, what was he suffering from? He was consumption uh, and he was coughing up blood and he started getting really sick on stage, but he insisted that the, the show must go on. They finish the play. Uh, even while Moliere's coughing up blood during the play, they take him home and he dies later that night um, so he was doing theater up until the day he died literally okay some so characteristics of French theater now that we've gone through the big three playwrights so the first stable theater in France uh, the hotel di uh built in 1548 initially for mystery plays which if you remember that those religious plays however this is the time when we have a lot of religious wars so mystery plays were outlawed, but the the troupe that owned this theater, uh, the Conferi de la Pachon, the Conferi did um, started like uh, kind of like slapstick and farcical humors. However, they found they could make more money by renting to like touring companies, especially Italian touring companies. Here's a picture of one of those. Uh, a Dell'Arte company which became very popular, introducing Harlequin and Pantaloon to French audiences. Those actors were became quite famous, though I, I forgot what their names are just now. And actually, um, Mr. Pantaloon here, the, the, the larger gentleman, um, was eventually imprisoned and died in prison for insulting the gentry on stage. So it was, uh, you know, the, the, the theater could be a little more dangerous maybe than it is today. Now, here's a competing theater, uh, Théâtre du Mérat, I think is how we say that, in 1634. This theater was built on the site of a tennis court. So you'd have these large courts for playing. I don't think it was tennis the way we think of it as tennis. It's it's a version of that. But these courts were enormous. And this is going to be a thing in later in England as well, starting in... Um, in the 1660s and later we're going to start to see theaters in England being built on tennis courts um and this theater was you could see there the the actors who created it uh they created their own troupe to complete with the Comedians du Roi at the Hotel de brognon um and so that was the the troupe that was in the hotel and they they formed this one and this is a little more dangerous Le Cid premiered there um the theater burnt in the 1640s and then was rebuilt. What they did when they rebuilt it was they, they had a proscenium arch, which is the first official proscenium arch um, in, in Europe, supposedly. And they also had a lot of special effects. So they started doing like machinery where you could see people flying through the air on, on like a wire or something like that. The theater started doing that in order to compete with, with the hotel. Uh, and that's, that's this theater. Okay. Some other facts. So here's the opera house, um, but troops were made up of 8 to 12 people. We did have, unlike England, women did perform on stage. Uh, a lot of the theater was hugely supported by uh, Louis and Richelieu. Um, we had something called, we're going to cover this also, Ballet de Corps, which was a, a sort of French version of masks, and then we'll talk a little bit about opera as well, and Jean Baptiste Lully. Ballet de Col. Uh, This is a, a picture of it, and what they were held in were these large hallways. So not in theaters, but large hallways, and people you could see here were like crowded in on all sides. Um, these were more like a parade rather than a ballet. Um, Cour just means the court, the, you know. And what happens is people would dress up in these nice outfits and sing and do like music and. and and recite poetry. Think of the Macy's Day Parade, right? There's singing and music, but also walking in a big line (laughs) here, you know, like walking in a big circle. And they were kind of for the praise of the king or for the country. Um, And so that would be be the idea here. Um, And that was a very popular form of presentational entertainment as well. Um, Now we get to opera and the most important French opera aficionado uh, opera excuse me not aficionado writer of that time uh, Jean-baptiste Lully um, he joined like the official violin ensemble of, of Louis in the 1650s sometime and he started writing those court ballets uh, ballet de corps that we, we mentioned before from 64 to 70 he began to write music with moliere who's writing music for moliere stuff and then uh, he had a he, he broke with Moliere and then later in, in 72, he started writing like straight up operas. Um, he introduced a lot of different type of musical types, the minuet, which is a dance in three, four time, which became not only important in French music, but became important in German and Austrian music. Um, it became the, the minuet and trio was the third movement in symphonies everywhere. So if you know, like, Like you read about symphonies, right? Like Beethoven's 42nd Symphony or, um, you know, the Surprise by Haydn or, um, excuse me, Mozart's 42nd Symphony or like uh, Beethoven's 3rd Symphony, these things. The third movement was a minuet. Um, He also had other dances, the the jig and the gavotte being some of those dances that also moved on. They had another life in German music, um, and, and they were very important. And the jig, you could think of like dance a jig, right? Well, this is this is where it comes from. It's actually spelled G I G U E in in French. He also invented another popular form, the overture, which is the overture. is a type of very grand, stately music that introduces an opera, uh, and it was really written for when Louis the Fourteenth walked to his seat. Louis the Fourteenth walked to his seat, and you'd have this this huge overture. The overture also. Is now, w- was used in opera for hundreds of years after, though. Um, and so, yeah, so that was him. Now, moving on to Moliere's verse, Moliere wrote in something called the Alexandrine, which is based on these poems that use the Alexandrine uh, that were about Alexander the Great, hence their name. It's a 12 syllable line, though some of Moliere's lines run on 13, and they're all rhyming couplets. So it's A A B B C C. And so for English translators, you have, to, you have to get it to rhyming couplets. That's just Moliere. Um, there's a caesura exactly at the midpoint between the two groups of six. And so you have what are called major and minor stresses. In the first group of six, the, uh, the major stress ends on the last syllable. So right before the caesura. in the second group of six, the major stress ends on, again, the last syllable. So the rhyming word the minor syllables or secondary stresses um they could go wherever you like there's less there's less regulation when it comes to the secondary stresses where there's a lot when it comes to 12 syllables in two parts and you must 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 rhyme Um, yeah but you have a little more flexibility on the stress and here's an example of this um so this this basically means like in in um thinking about tears that pushes away the storm. I think that's what that translates to. And you could see here in the first il pin si vu i pleure, and then dissiper. So there's kind of a, a little you know, you could see the stress isn't normalized, right? We just get one on the uh, on the end there. Um oh, ah. and then there's actually a, an effeminate stress at the end of this Alexandrian, a thirteenth stress which is the J right there. So not exactly classical, classical Alexandrian, but, um, a, a pretty good example of this. And you could see plus and, ah are the the two places where plus and, ah the two places where the, the stress is. And of course, uh, plus agi is supposed to rhyme though. My French is so bad that <laughs> I'm having trouble getting it. Um, but yeah, you can see just kind of an example of how Scansion would work in a different context, in a different language. All right. And that brings us to the end. And I should be back. All right. So we're already over a minute because that was a long presentation. And I, I didn't want to, to stress you out with taking notes about Moliere while you had a project to. Um, any questions about all of that?